0: Ya llegaron de la sierra, porque los mandó Fidel, libertaron nuestra sierra y nos dieron la paz al volver. Por las calles aclamados, su ideal, su fe que más pudo. Todos gritan han triunfado, que viva Fidel, viva los ayudos. Hello comrades and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Spectre. I'm delighted today to be joined by Rob Miller from the Cuba Solidarity Campaign. Rob, it's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: No worries, good to be here.
0: Just to get us started off, Robert, just a wee introduction from yourself, you know, who you are, your affiliations and everything else in between. Okay, well, I'm Rob Miller, I'm the Director of the uh, Cuba Solidarity Campaign. Uh, in Britain, um, which I've been doing for about
1: 20, 25 years now. Um, yeah, so it's so an honor to be here, great to speak about Cuba again. And um, yeah, i just back back from Cuba, went over there with a, with a load of young trade unionists, which I know we'll talk about later, but uh, yeah, pleased to be here.
0: Perfect, Robert, thank you very much. So just to get us started off then, the Cuba Solidarity campaign, you know, who are you and what's some of the work that you guys carry out?
1: Okay, so... Uh, Cuban Solidarity, or CSC as we call it, is a sort of non, non-government organisation over here. Been running really since the uh, the Cuban Revolution after 1959, when a load of people went over there on a one of the first work brigades uh, in 1960, and they came back and set up an organisation. It wasn't called CSC then; um, it was called uh, Scientific Aid, I think. Cuban Britain Scientific Aid then developed into the Britain Cuba Resource Centre, and then finally in. Uh, the 90s, it became the Cuba Solidarity Campaign. Um, It's made up of individual members. So if anyone listening wants to join, you're more than welcome. Uh, Probably about 5,000 individual members. And then we've got about 500 affiliated organisations, including uh, most of the British trade unions, so 23 national trade unions and around 450-odd trade union regions and branches. Um, That's the basis of the organisation. It elects an, uh, an executive committee every year has about 30 local groups around the country. Um, Sister organisation is Scotland, the Scottish Cuba Solidarity Campaign. Um, And we really stand for uh, the rights of the Cuban people to defend and to develop their own country how they want to develop it. So it's the sovereignty for the Cuban people, self-determination for the Cuban people, so they can develop their society as they wish without the fear of aggression and threat from other countries, mainly the United States of America. We also uh, are opposed to the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which has been going for over 60 years, um, and for you know, Cuba to develop its society, how it wants to, uh, without foreign intervention. Uh, we want the return of Guantanamo Bay to the Cuban people, the occupied land at Guantanamo Bay. So they're really the basis of the political uh, reasons for the Solidarity Campaign. Obviously, at the moment, we spend quite a lot of time helping the people of Cuba who are you know, suffering under that blockade because it is impacting on their daily lives. So... Yeah, that's pretty much what we get up to. We lobbied the British government, uh, Welsh and uh, Scottish parliaments also to try and make sure they have good relations with Cuba and improving relations with Cuba as a counterpoint to the US blockade.
0: Yeah, cheers for that, Robert. That was great. Uh, what I love about the Cuba solid, solidarity campaign as well, it's, you know, it's not just an online thing. Like you said, you're very active in the work that you do uh, and across Britain. Uh, it's, it's great here in Glasgow uh, with the, the stall that's usually run being able to meet folk who, who have so many heartfelt stories of uh, you know, people suffering under the blockade and even suffering persecution even even abroad when uh, when they're going across representing Cuba doing the various work that they do so it's very interesting to see the, the in-person work that's carried out by the, the Cuba Solidarity campaign as well as uh, how great it is to see the, the different affiliates Uh, organisations, even from trade union branches as well, Uh, and I think that's something that really needs to uh, stay nice and strong within the trade union movement here in Britain as our continued solidarity effort with the Cuban people, and you touched on it earlier, obviously the the May Day brigades and everything like that, and it was refreshing to see that again this year. And I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it, but no, it was a very good uh, rundown uh, of that there, Robert. Thank you very much for that. And when we talk about obviously the reasons for the Cuba Solidarity Campaign existing, that is essentially you know the history, of the the Cuban struggle, and the blockade. If you as you've said it yourself, you know, so many people tend to call it uh, an embargo, but that would probably be the most incorrect terminology for it. It truly really is a, a a blockade. So how and why was the blockade implemented on the Cuban people?
1: Okay, well, it's a, it's a long story. It's a 60-year-old story now. So the revolution was in 1959 and um, there was obviously political animosity from the United States. Um, uh, one of the the key sort of precursors really to the blockade was a, a statement by a guy called Lester Mallory who was in the State Department and issued a kind of a proclamation on Cuba which really called for the blockade um, and in it he makes the uh, the words, he says that the, the blockade should should uh, cause desperation and hunger and they're the words of the State Department, desperation and hunger to force the Cuban people to uh, look for change, for the change of government. So regime change was the, the basis for it. Um, and then in 1960, you've got the first uh, legal steps in the US of the blockade, which really, um, you know, under, under Kennedy in 1962, they introduced the first sort of elements that would start to stop Cuban exports. Uh, that was strengthened all the way. It's been strengthened uh, periodically. Uh, I suppose the biggest points was the Torricelli Act in the 90s, which... Um, started to stop um, US companies from trading with Cuba and US subsidiary companies from trading with Cuba overseas. And then in the mid-90s, you had the Helms-Burton legislation, which really made the blockade extraterritorial, uh, which means that it's not only affecting American uh, companies, um, but it's affecting companies in third countries. So individuals in Britain, in France, in Germany, around the world, are now uh, blocked from trading uh, with Cuba, and, and that's done under a series of uh, threats and fines massive multi million dollar fines against companies that trade with Cuba. Um, and we can talk about that a bit more. Uh, but the blockade was strengthened yet again under Trump, um, who introduced a further 200 m- measures against Cuba. So, really, the blockade is at its strongest point now uh, in history, um, and it is the longest blockade of any country outside of wartime. Uh, It's certainly a blockade because uh, an embargo is really about two countries, one country not wanting to trade with another country. That's any country's prerogative. Uh, You know, if Britain decided they didn't want to trade with Italy, that's up to Britain. Um, But once you start stopping third countries uh, in an extraterritorial way, which the blockade does, now it it becomes a blockade. It's definitely a blockade. It's not a material blockade, as some people might think, with a a, you know a, a ring of ships around Cuba or anything. But it's one of the most powerful. Uh, and noxious pieces of legislation in history really and it's strangling a small island of 11 million people and the country that's doing that strangling is the biggest superpower on earth the United States which is just 90 miles away so it's a a terrible uh, indictment really of the United States that wants to bully its close neighbor uh, Cuba into submission the reasons why it does that is a whole other story which we can talk about. Um, recently, I suppose uh, it's important to mention that uh, Biden has done very little to uh, push back on the Trump uh, you know, uh, uh, measures, even though Biden was part of Obama's uh, administration. And Obama, as you probably know, uh, loosened the blockade in some ways, particularly in, in the narrative they opened embassies in, in Havana and in Washington, and there were talks beginning uh, to develop over different sorts of agreements to do with customs, to do with migration and so on. But Trump rolled all of that rapprochement back and has in fact made it worse. And the last thing he did before he left office was to add Cuba to the United States unilateral uh, list of state sponsors of terrorism. And Biden has done nothing to take that off them off that list. So they're still on that list and that's renewed every year. So the Biden administration is carrying on with the same policies of Trump and the blockade today, as I said, is incredibly serious. You have got to look at the history of Cuba. You know, in the in, I mean, I first went in 1978, and Cuba was a very different place. You know, it was uh, had a lot of friends around the world, particularly in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc countries, uh, Cuba lost over seven percent of its trade, international trade, overnight. So it went very quickly into a very difficult period in the early 90s called the special period. Cuba was coming out of that period with the development of tourism, uh, the development of international trade. Cuba was doing pretty well uh, before COVID uh, COVID hit and Trump really put the boot in. Um, and it's been very, very difficult over the past few years for the people of Cuba. It's a bit like the special period in the 90s. It's a very difficult uh, period, which is why material solidarity is so important now. But uh, the blockade is fundamentally the reason uh, why there are so many difficulties in Cuba, um, and people often uh, will talk about you know the bad housing or the lack of food or you know lack of transport or, or fuel. Every sort of element of uh, life in Cuba is impacted by the blockade. Um, it's not something that you know is kind of just a, a nefarious thing. It's very very present on a daily basis in every area of Cuban life. So that's from uh, food and consumables but also impacting on health and education and social care and sports and culture so every element of cuban life is impacted severely by that blockade so it's uh, our number one concern and it should be the number one concern of progressives around the world to try and end that blockade
0: yeah that's a great rundown rob and especially and you know why it was implemented like you said, to starve the cuban people uh, and uh aiding the US's imperialist attempts in enforcing a coup, uh, which isn't the first time they've done something like this uh, on a sovereign nation. Uh, and certainly the fear that the US has felt from uh, the days of the Cuban Revolution, where Cuba's continued to, to grow, develop and revolutionize uh, its own independence, uh, especially in regards to its own uh, education uh, of, of its people. It's, it's really, really impressive, almost wiping out uh, illiteracy uh, on the island, its uh, ability to organise the, the collective farms themselves. And I've uh, heard uh, the successes of this from many of the people who've been on the May-, May Day Brigades who've witnessed firsthand the effectiveness of it. All of this and all of the, all of the success, even under such a brutal blockade that, that Cuba's faced, they've still been able to grow and develop and being that shining star for you know what Latin American people can achieve, uh, even under the bit of American imperialism. Uh, has been a threat that the US has been absolutely fearful for, like you said, over 60 years. They've continued to try harsher attempts of dehumanizing and demonizing uh, the Cuban people. But needless to say, that's not worked. And time and time again, they've continued to grow, especially over the the growth of COVID, uh, with Cuba being, I I believe, was one of the first countries to come up with their own vaccine which was uh, at the time it was absolutely amazing to see Uh, and it showed even under these restrictions they were still able to grow impressively i know we're going to come on to to talk about how it works later on but it is frightening you know how you see uh, other countries being bullied uh, by by such large fines and uh, again it's the fear of american imperialism and it's it's grasp uh, around the world. So it is terrifying to see that. But no, I was a really good uh, analysis into that, Robert. I thank you for that.
1: Uh, can I just, Nathan, can I, on the blockade, I think it's important people, um, you know, that one, I mean, people often say, why do the Americans carry on with the blockade? You know, it's a very small country, it's no threat. I mean, perhaps it's a threat of a good example, but that's not really enough for a 60 year war of aggression and threats and intimidation, invasions, uh, attempts to assassinate uh, the leaderships of Cuba, famously 600 assassination attempts of Fidel Castro, all all shown to be true, you know, when it came out in the CIA documents, you know, the exploding cigars and the poisoned uh, swimming gear and whatever. Um, it's not the American people generally that have got a, a gripe with Cuba. Most American people want to go to Cuba. When When Obama allowed more tourists to go, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans went to Cuba. It's very much in their psyche, you know, all those films that you know about, the Goodfellas films and the Godfather and, you know, Guys and Dolls or whatever it might be. Uh, Cuba's very close to uh, the United States and it's very in the heart of many Americans. They want to go there. It's a nice Caribbean island. They've read about it. They like the music and so on and so forth. So it's it's quite interesting to know why that blockade continues because it is a Cold War policy. It's anachronistic. You know, it's from a different era it just seems completely bizarre. You know, the United United States trades with Vietnam, it trades with China, even trades with uh, North Korea. But, you know, when it comes to Cuba, this small, little developing island, they just can't seem to move beyond that position, that Cold War anachronistic position. And the main reason isn't, I don't believe, uh, the fear of uh, socialism anymore from from America. It's it's pretty much dominated by a group of... uh, Cuban Americans who are based in Florida. And they are really the descendants of the leaders, the aristocracy, the, the factory owners, the plantation owners of pre revolutionary Cuba, who were around the dictatorship of Fulgencia Batista, who were, over, were overthrown really by the Cuban people at the time of the revolution. And most of those people decamped to Florida, where many of them had houses anyway. Um and just waited out what they thought would be a very short revolution. So they thought, oh, it'll only last a couple of months and then we'll go back to Cuba and get our plantations back and our factories back and go back to the status quo where maybe 10% of the population were doing quite well under the US-backed uh, dictatorship. Uh, as long as you weren't black, of course, or a campesino. But uh, if you were white and uh, in an urban area and middle class, you, you'd do badly out of it. Uh, the casinos were thriving, the prostitution was thriving, the drugs trade was thriving. There was quite a lot of money for some people uh, in Cuba at the time. And uh, six months went by, a year went by, the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. Uh, the attempt to overthrow the revolution failed. And those people in Florida have got more and more bitter and twisted uh, about the situation they find themselves in, where they feel that they have lost what they had, their, their supremacy of Cuba, their ownership of Cuba, um, and years have gone by, 20 years, 30 years, it's now 60 years. And that community, I'm not saying all of that community, but many of the people in Florida around Miami uh, are related or descendants of a very hard right, uh, i call them a mafia, if you like. They Many of them were part of the criminal fraternity that run Cuba like a playground for the rich. I mean, they were those people. The mafia went to Cuba in, in the 30s because of prohibition. And it flourished in Havana. Havana became that crime centre of the region. You went to, to, to Cuba to have a good time because you couldn't do it in America. And when the revolution happened, they just moved their uh, criminal activities back to Florida and carried on. And the whole cocaine trade up from Latin America, Oliver North, uh, You know the, the Iran-Contra scandal. You can go through the whole history of uh, Latin American politics and you'll find that Cuban-Americans have played a front-line role in U.S. Uh, hardline right-wing politics across the region. Look at the Nicaraguan War, the Contra War in Nicaragua, fully orchestrated using Cuban-Americans, the assassination of Allende in Chile. You can go through all the coup attempts across that region and you'll find that Cuban-Americans have been somehow involved at the behest of the CIA. So that community in Florida ha- is a very powerful I suppose you could call it a lobby group, but they're more than a lobby group in the fact that uh, they don't just lobby, they make sure things happen. And if they don't like it, they will let you know using uh, violent means uh, as needed. And they have done so in the past, on many occasions. So they're a real threat, a really powerful threat. And of course, they dominate Florida. And you'll know uh, when there are US presidential elections, Florida is a key state. You cannot become president of the United States without winning Florida. It is about 11 or 12 percent, I think, of the U.S. electoral vote. You have to win Florida to become president. So every time there's a U.S. presidential election, every four years, uh, Cuba, Cuba, the issue of Cuba, becomes an electoral uh, talking point way beyond the number of people who are that interested in it. So that million-odd Cuban Americans have a very, very powerful uh, voice uh, and a very powerful sway over the international policies of the United States, particularly vis-a-vis Cuba. And it's that hard line element that is really driving the blockade today. It's not your average American citizen. Most of them would quite happily go to Cuba, probably don't know an awful lot about it, and are really not that interested in, in the international political situation. But each, uh, the, the grouping around Florida means that you still maintain this stupid, uh, mad Cold War politics, which is very, very hard for people to understand why the United States is continuing. But Obama himself said, you know, if you if the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and not actually achieving what you're setting out to achieve. And the US has had the same policy for 60 years, which is regime change in Cuba. And whatever they've tried, they have failed. Yet they just keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again. It is illogical. It is stupid. And you have to see it in the the, the context of what's happening in Florida and that powerful community to really understand why the blockade uh, continues. Of course, there's a nice relationship between the Florida mob and far-right neoliberalism in the United States, which comes together uh, as an anti-communist or anti-socialist uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, view of the world, um, and clearly there's a, a, a big stake in multinational companies who would really like to get hold of uh, Cuba and, and the markets and the infrastructure on the island. You know it's 11 million people. It's not massive, but it's a market that capitalism wants to exploit the same as it does around the world. So there are a number of factors, but the biggest factor in terms of why you've got such a stupid policy, uh, a Cold War anachronistic policy, is the power of the Florida. Cuban Americans, who, like I say, aren't a sort of just a, a nice little lobby group. They're a very powerful group who really have their fingers uh, right into the uh, highest echelons, particularly of the Republican Party. Uh, you've got to remember that you know, in in George Bush's cabinet, there were fourteen Cuban Americans. His uh, his nephew Jeb Bush was governor of Florida. Florida is a is a, a web of. Uh, pretty nefarious right-wing mafiosa uh, masquerading as some sort of human rights democrats it's a nonsense and uh, you you have to kind of understand that to understand the depth of the, the interrelationship between United States and Cuba it's like this sort of very very vicious family dispute it's not a normal political disagreement it's a vicious family dispute and anyone who's been involved in family disputes Will know how complicated they are to extricate themselves from them. You know, you, they're very difficult to break them up.
0: Yeah, absolutely spot on there, comrade. Uh, I like what you're saying about Cuba being the former playground of exploitation, uh, and that's you know the longing uh, of so many of the Gisanos as we know them, as <laughs> to long for again is this playground and the the freedom to exploit uh, and to to line their own pockets up. Uh, and it is very interesting to like say Florida being that key state as you've put it, a web of uh, mafiosa, a web of crime and a web of corruption there uh, in order to maintain uh, such a key state. As you've rightly said, the, the many right-wing elements uh, within uh, the, 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 the dissident, the Cuban-Americans longing for a return to the days where they could exploit uh, and, and practically enslave uh, some of their own for the sake of their profit. Uh, that's still something they long for and something they, as you've, uh, as you've quite rightly mentioned, they work very, very hard Uh, to try and achieve again so it's very interesting to to see that development every now and then when it comes around to any point of american election or policy or anything that uh, um, uh, could impact florida uh, in any way shape or form it's always very interesting to keep note on that but with that being said moving on to the the next point then uh, i know we've touched on it uh, just briefly or teasing on it briefly before was the the mayday brigade you know, how important is this event for both outsiders, like you say, you know, not people who may be advocates for socialism or, or, or communism in itself. Uh, but uh, as well as that, how important is that for the Cuban people when when people come across to uh, see how the, the, the island functions and the hard work that people do uh, under this blockade?
1: Yeah, I mean, the May Day Brigade is uh, brilliant because it's, uh, it's young people, it's working people working class people from the UK going over to Cuba and seeing it themselves. We send three brigades a year, the May Day Brigade, a Summer Brigade and a Winter Brigade. And we also send delegations, trade union delegations, different groups. We've got a group of uh, 25 teachers going out in October um, and they've been going every year. The National Education Union teachers, uh, different groups at a unison delegation over there at May time and so on and so forth, as well as study tours. Uh, We try and get as many people over to Cuba as possible. Um, on the one hand, it helps the people of Cuba because tourism is a way of for the Cubans to uh, obtain hard currency pretty quick. You know, it was the it was the, the only option available to Cuba after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, before the nineteen nineties, Cuba wasn't interested in in tourism, mass popular tourism like that. It just wasn't there. Uh, it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union that Cuba had to find a, a quick way to. rebuild its economy to pay for the schools, the hospitals, the social care. And tourism was the obvious one. And they spent three or four years building an incredible tourism infrastructure really quickly overnight. Um, And that really, I suppose, saved the revolution at that time because it was in a dire, dire situation. And tourism still remains a very important element in uh, the Cuban economy. So you can see the brigades in that light in helping Cuba. It's a very good thing to do to go to Cuba and enjoy Cuba, enjoy the beaches, enjoy the rum, the cigars, all the aspects of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And anyone who can, uh, we would urge anyone to go, you know, whether you're into it or you're not into it, uh, just go to Cuba. We, You know, the Cubans want you to go, and they want to show off their country, they want you to spend your money there, and we would certainly encourage anybody. But I suppose the brigades, and particularly the May Day Brigade, are very important, not only for the people of Cuba, but for, for all of us, because as we say to people over there, you know, it's not your solidarity isn't going to Cuba. I mean, it's nice to go to Cuba and it's an act of solidarity in a way. Um, and you can take stuff over there and all sorts of things, you know, you can do to actually help. But the, the best thing about the brigades and the programmes that we organise is that we explain to people that the, the work starts when they come back again, when they come back to uh, England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, because then you can really uh, take forward your job of solidarity because you've seen Cuba, you've seen it for yourself. And you therefore become an ambassador, if you like, uh, for Cuba, a spokesperson for Cuba. And one of the biggest problems Cuba faces is the lack of uh, correct and factual information about the island. People see Cuba through the prism of the United States media, and the British media just f- tack along to it. And much of it emanates from Florida, the same, very same people we were just talking about, many of whom are paid by the US taxpayer under so called democracy programs to write the truth, as they put it, uh, about Cuba, which is, in fact, a a load of garbage. So you just churn out uh, anti-socialist, anti-Cuban nonsense, um, and it's picked up around the world. So by going to Cuba and seeing it for yourself and then coming back and talking about it and explaining to your friends, your family, your work colleagues, uh, your comrades, wherever you might be, you can do a role of solidarity. You can do a job of solidarity. I mean, I work, I've work. i worked a long time in this job. And every time I go to a social occasion, a party or something like that, as soon as I mention my job, I'll have all and sundry telling me everything there is to know about Cuba. They all know about Cuba. Everyone will tell you what Cuba is. They'll all go on about Fidel and communism and one party state and this, that. And they, they've read it. They know about Cuba. They completely ignore the fact that you've actually worked with Cuba for 25 years and you might actually know something about it. You've been there quite a few times, but they ignore all that because they all know. I mean, people will tell you about Cuba. No worries about that. They'll all tell you about Cuba. But the problem is that people don't know. They don't hear about the success stories that you were talking about, about the health care, which is the best health care in the hemisphere, uh, about the fact that their infant mortality rates, which is one of the uh, most clear signs of a healthy society their infant mortality rates are lower than the United States you know and infant mortality is something that takes into account nutrition health social collectivization and so on education it's a real key indicator Cuba has a lower infant mortality rate than the United States it has a higher life expectancy Uh, than many parts of the united states and if you compare it to the rest of the region it's head and shoulders about most of that region again with education exactly the same thing you know cuba spends a higher percentage of its gdp on health and education than any other country in the world it has three times the number of doctors per uh, population than we do in britain you know and, and when you look at the health services in our country and you wonder why you know, people are are unable to access GPs or they're unable to get, you know, basic health treatments or dental care. Yeah, you know, it's very simple. You know, they're not, you need more doctors, you need more dentists, and you need more access for everybody free at the point of delivery, which they've got in Cuba. So those kind of things are um, incredibly important. And I think when people go to Cuba and they come back, they can say, and no one can argue with them because they've seen it, and it's not a question of well, you read this and I read that. I've actually been there, I've seen it, I met people, I talked to people. You know, I, I don't agree with a bloke on the internet who's slagging it off, but because I've met a load of other people in Cuba, real people, not people on the internet, real people who told me something different. And when you go to Cuba, you know the Cubans are not—they're uh, not shy to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Then there's no. There's no embarrassment about them telling you how crappy crack the, uh, the transport is at the moment or their housing conditions. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty upfront. They're an incredibly educated uh, population. And you will go anywhere you like and meet anyone you like and ask any questions you want. So when you come back, you're fully armed, at the very least, with the ability to turn around. Well, actually, when I was in Cuba, I saw this or when I was in Cuba, this happened. And at the end of the day, you know, no one's asking you to... Uh, to become a, a, a revolutionary and and try and build Cuban socialism in Britain, that's not the job of the Cuban Solidarity Campaign. All we're saying is that Cuba is a functioning society. It has a lot of things that we can learn about. There's things that they can learn about too. But it's a it's a functioning society. It has some wonderful achievements, as you've mentioned yourself, namely in all the things that matter to most people, like health, education, social care, jobs pride in your community, those kind of things that we'd all like to see in this country. Uh, And it is somewhere to behold. And look at this way, if if you're, I will say this, you can't really compare Cuba with like, you know, Leeds or Manchester or something. You can't do a direct comparison. They're very, very different countries. Cuba's a poor developing country. But if you are poor in Latin America, say you're living in, in Bolivia and you're poor in Bolivia and your kids are ill, and they've got some silly illness, and you can't get a doctor, you can't pay for a doctor, because you've got got to find one first, then you've got to pay for a doctor, you can't afford it. Your kids are ill, and they're going to suffer for whatever uh, illness they might have. And you think, well, if I was in Cuba, I'd have a doctor, I'd have a nurse, I'd have treatment. Then you look at Cuba very differently. If you're you're living in uh, Peru or somewhere like that, or Brazil, and your kid really wants to be an artist or a dancer or a scientist, And you can't get your kid in a school or you can't get your kid in a college because there isn't a college or you can't afford it. And you look at Cuba and you think, well, if my kids were in Cuba, they could at least do their best and they'd have the opportunity, the same as everybody else, to be a dancer, to be an artist, to be a scientist. Then you look at Cuba completely differently. And you look at Cuba like some sort of nirvana, quite honestly, because if you're poor in those countries, and you've got to remember that most people <laughs> across the third world, the developing world are poor. They don't have access to all these things. They're not the, the rich ones you see on the television. Most people are poor and they haven't got access to all these things. They look at you look at Cuba completely differently. Cuba is something you aspire to as a society that gives equally uh, to all according to their need, and everyone puts in what they can. And that's a wonderful thing. And so when you've been to Cuba and you see ordinary working people like you, like me, uh, ordinary people, old people, young people who are just trying to live their lives as best they can and work as hard as they can and achieve as best as they can and get educated as best they can and look after each other as best they can. then And you see that that is being thwarted by a rich, (laughs) overindulgent superpower around the corner for very nefarious reasons then you can come back and be an ambassador for Cuba. You can come back and talk about it. And quite honestly, you're in the best place to do it. And that's why we want people to go to Cuba, so that when they come back, they can tell the truth about the island, what they've seen, the good and the bad, make their own minds up and uh, really work for international solidarity, which is really what we're trying to do, is build uh, the strongest possible movement of international solidarity in support of Cuba against the blockade. Uh, And for the Cuban people's rights to just achieve what they can as a country Uh, as best they can I mean imagine I mean imagine you know you mentioned yourself about the vaccines I mean this is a small developing uh, Caribbean island it's got a national ballet that tours the world you know it's got sports stars that we've all heard of you know who were winning goals at Olympic Games it's got wonderful music uh Buena Vista Social Club whatever you know dance cinema amazing cinema an amazing culture um it's got incredible achievements You know, you mentioned the vaccines. I mean, this is a small Caribbean island who were going to be excluded from the COVAX scheme, you know, the international scheme of vaccines. They had no choice but to sort themselves out. And they put everything they could into the research, the development, and then the production of vaccines. And they built their own vaccines. They designed researched and developed their own vaccines this is incredible quite honestly it's an absolute miracle that a small country like that could do it you remember when in the middle of covid all the all the rich countries were scrabbling around fighting over the bloody vaccines and they weren't you know they're worrying about whether they could get them or not and this is cuba just went ahead and did it it's an incredible achievement so you imagine that country and the ability of those people without the blockade tying them down without the Blockade, strangling them, stopping them from engaging on international basis, stopping them from trading, exchanging, sharing, uh, developing further. Imagine the success that country could achieve uh, if it wasn't hamstrung by the vicious US blockade. So the brigades, I've gone off a bit of point, are an opportunity for people uh, to see, to find out, to learn, and to come back and share their experiences with others. And that is fundamentally why the block brigades, the May Day brigades, are so important and particularly on the mayday brigade of course a lot of young working trade unionists who are delegated from their unions is a wonderful thing because they have to come back have to give report backs to their branches to their regions they write articles um in the newspapers in their journals and they share the information and it is incredibly difficult for someone in their union or their workplace to turn around and say well no i don't like you because it's this that and the other because they can say well actually when i was there this is what it was like and that's the most important reason uh, for those brigades. And so it's wonderful so many people went. And if anyone's listening who wants to go to Cuba, do get in touch. Um, I can't offer you a free trip, but there are lots of opportunities and we can advise you on uh, who to approach and how to get over there. It's wonderful to go on a work brigade. You're going in solidarity. You know, you're know, you seeing people in a in a spirit of solidarity. You're not just going as a tourist. But tourism's good too, and the beaches are wonderful. So don't, don't be shy of going for whatever reason.
0: Absolutely spot on, Comrade. I don't think I could have put that better myself. Yeah, like you said, it's it's a great opportunity for for people, like we say who aren't revolutionaries, as we say. You know, you don't have to be a a member of a communist party to go to Cuba the same same way you did not have to be a member of a communist party uh, to go to the Soviet Union back the day. You know, they were constant trade union delegations learning about the, the various people within the Soviet Union and building their land, building their communities, uh, especially after uh, the the devastating destruction uh, of, of of fascist Germany uh, and the, the catastrophic damage uh, that was done. Uh, and then Cuba, you know, like you says, they're not shy to, to talk. And that's really what the Cuban people love to do as well, where the, the, the people that go there to see them is talk to them. They want to find out what... Uh, they're doing back home in their own countries to aid Cuba as well uh, in, in terms of tackling their own governments to, to not being fearful uh, of American imperialism and aiding the Cuban people and breaking that blockade. So it's absolutely fantastic. And again, I definitely echo what you say about people taking the opportunity, if they have it, to, to go either in the May Day Brigade or any of the other delegations to Cuba because it's a, uh, almost as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity but if you're actively involved within the trade union movement and, and have that continued support and passion to go to Cuba then the sky's the limit and you can find yourself there no doubt numerous times if uh, if you can uh, and it will continue to be uh, an amazing opportunity regardless of how many times you go uh, and of course the, the rum and the cigars are just a, an added bonus to that as well <laughs> along with the good weather. But yeah, moving on from that, you know, we've talked uh, sort of the international work for for people, you know, both in Britain, even trade unionists unionists in America uh, going to Cuba. But I'd love to talk about Cuba's international work specifically, as we've sort of discussed throughout the show uh, in terms of medicine. Uh, and Cuba's medical internationalism has been uh, absolutely fantastic throughout history. And again, especially through COVID. Uh, I'm just wondering, Robert, if you can give us a wee uh, sort of rundown on that sort of international work that they do medically throughout the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's something uh, that makes me really proud to to work with Cuba and Cuba solidarity campaign. When you see uh, Cuban medics, doctors, nurses, health experts around the world, When we were there in uh, May, just a few weeks ago, we were in a a regional hospital in Santi Spiritu and uh, someone asked a question about international work and it was only a small hospital, it wasn't a big big town. Um, And they asked if anyone from this hospital was on an international mission. And the, the doctor said, yes, and they said, well, how many? And he went, there's actually 39 doctors from this one hospital abroad right now. Uh, uh, in, in, in in 30 or different countries. It was just like everyone was like, what now? <laughs> right now from this hospital. Cuba sent something like half a million medics around the world over the last uh, last few decades. Um, there's something like 40,000 doctors abroad right now as we speak. I think it's in 39 countries. Um, there are more Cuban doctors abroad than the World Health Organisation and Medicines on Frontier put together. So it gives you an idea of the scale of Cuba's internationalism. And there were some incredible stories about it. I mean, you know, this goes right back to the 1960s when they sent medical uh, doctors to Algeria. And they'd been all over the world to all, every sort of country in emergency situations, but also in uh, cooperation agreements like in Brazil, where they had uh, tens of thousands of doctors in the poorest parts of the country as part of the Mass Medicos uh, programme, helping people who didn't have access uh, to doctors. And I'm pleased to see that Lula has announced that they will be re-establishing that programme with the Cuban doctors, um, which was, you know, broken down in the the terrible years of Bolsonaro. But, uh, you know, there's some wonderful, incredible stories. I I remember we brought a doctor over here. He was called Carlos uh, de Puy, a lovely guy, and he'd headed up the uh, Cuban uh, delegation to... Uh, Pakistan after the Kashmir earthquake. And it was a terrible earthquake. And um it was maybe 2010 or something like that. I can't remember the exact date. But um, yeah, you know, these were 600 odd Cuban doctors ended up going there and they were working in the Himalayas. And you can picture these you know, Cubans from the Caribbean working up in the hills of the Himalayas, traipsing through the snow. And there's a wonderful film about it, a documentary film called In the Ladders of the Himalayas, or the foothills, sorry, of the Himalayas. And uh Yeah, it was wonderful because, of course, the Cuban medical days, uh, loads of women, lots of women, which was wonderful in in those communities in Kashmir, made a huge difference. Um, And, you know, after the Kashmir earthquake and after all the sort of international rescue and the special dogs that we send over there from the Western countries and all the TV cameras had gone home like about three weeks later, the Cubans were still there. Six months later, they were still there. Nearly a year later, they were still there. By the end of their stay... In Kashmir, I and mean, it's an incredible statistic that seventy-three percent of every medical intervention carried out following the Kashmir earthquake was carried out by a Cuban medic. So, nearly three quarters of every medical intervention. That's despite you know the West charging over there with all their specialist equipment and their dogs digging around in the rubble and their high-level GP, you know, doctors going out. I'm not knocking it; it's good, but at the end of the day. On terms of the day-to-day seriousness of dealing with a a, a massive emergency situation like that, nearly three-quarters of all interventions were carried out by Cubans, Cuban doctors. And that's an incredible thing. And that's just one example. In the Ebola crisis in West Africa, uh, the three countries that were asked to help by uh, the World Health Organization was the United States, Britain and Cuba. They were the three countries that were called upon by the World Health Organization to go and help with the Ebola crisis. Yeah, incredible for Cuba to be that country out of all the countries in the world. And Cuban doctors went there again. We brought one of those doctors over to Britain. And it's an incredible uh, story of, you know, just dedication, uh, humanity, sharing the Cuban they have a wonderful saying, you know, which is solidarity is to share what you have, not what you have left over. And I think it's something you know we can think about when you see, you know when things go wrong in, in the West and people all donate their leftover jumpers and their leftover this that and the other, and the Cubans are saying share what you have, not what you have left over. You know, it, it's an it, it, you think about it, and it's a it's a good saying. That's very much what the Cubans do. I mean, and the Chernobyl children. I mean, Chernobyl. You know, uh, right back in the eighties, Cuba uh, decided that they would help the children of Chernobyl. And it's something like 20,000 children now from Ukraine have gone over to Cuba completely free of charge and uh, kept, were cared for. And Cuba just took a decision to give free health care, rest, recuperation and so on to the children and their families, completely free of charge to the children following the Chernobyl uh, disaster. So it, it goes on. And you rightly mentioned during COVID, I mean, during I mean, recently, I was was in Cuba about maybe eight months ago and we were in a a different region in Pinar del Rio. And we we went to a hospital, as we often do, giving donations uh, of whatever of medical aid from people in Britain. And we asked the doctor about Covid and what they did. And he said, well, we drew up a six point plan. (laughs) And uh, number one in the plan, number one in the plan was to help people in other countries in the region. (laughs) That was the first point of their plan how to deal with COVID. Well, we're going to go and help people elsewhere that need us. (laughs) That was the first point in their plan. And it was an incredible thing. During COVID, uh, the Cubans sent over 40 medical brigades, 40 medical brigades to, well, to to 40 different countries uh, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, but also in Europe. So they sent people to Italy. They sent people to Andorra. When I say they sent them, they didn't just unilaterally decide, oh, we're going to go to Italy and help. They were invited by the authorities in Italy, by the authorities in Andorra, who needed help to cope with COVID. And the Cubans sent them. So they sent thousands of doctors and nurses to 40 different countries, including some British um, overseas territories in the the Caribbean, places like uh, Montserrat. Uh, So that was in agreement with the British government, who basically were requesting Cuban medical help uh, to those overseas territories. Uh, that we still have some sort of control over for some bizarre reason. But uh, Cuban internationalism, and particularly its medical internationalism, is really a miracle, really, for a small country like Cuba. There's so much you can talk about. I mean, they train doctors over an international medical school, the Latin American uh, School of Medicine, where they train tens of thousands of doctors from poor countries around the world, not just poor countries, from poor communities in the United States, send people there. People who can't train to be doctors because of the cost or there's no facilities to train. And they have no obligation. They're completely free of charge. They're not obliged. to The only commitment they make is to say that you will return to your communities and help other people. And they can or they can't. It's up to them. But uh, Cuba trains doctors from all around the world, from Africa, from Asia, uh, from the Americas. Uh, The eye uh, treatments, Operation uh, Milagro, Operation Miracle, which has set up eye clinics, all across Latin America, and over two million uh, people, I think, was the last figure I heard, have had their eyesight uh, treated, mainly cataracts. But if you've got cataracts and you're a doctor, you can't you can't be a doctor. If you've got cataracts and you're a teacher, you can't teach. But you can't see. So, having those basic eye operations for millions of people across Latin America in their countries, but also flying them into Cuba, all completely and utterly free of charge. I mean, it's an incredible thing, and I do think it is one of the Uh, most incredible achievements of Cuba, uh, their internationalism. And I hope, you know, people around the world, I know that people around the world recognise it and uh, celebrate it and see uh, what it is like to have a society that exports uh, care, doctors, medics, not exporting bombs and war and many of the things that some of our countries are engaged in, but actually does something very positive for countries and for people around the world without asking for anything back it's an incredible achievement.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Uh, a far contrast between Cuba and America. Cuba's biggest ex- export being doctors and medical aid, and the US has been bombs uh, and destruction. So, uh, uh, it really is impressive to see Cuba's international work, and that's just on its medical field alone. Uh, it really is a shining example uh, of the island and and the hard work that the people do there. Uh, you know the 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 humanity that they're 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 free to. Uh, give out to the rest of the world and, and, and definitely not shy of like you said a, a six point plan where the number one thing is helping others uh, it's absolutely amazing that that character and that attitude uh, runs rampant throughout the island uh, and as we're seeing by so many missions uh, throughout the world as well so absolutely fantastic there just going back to the the blockade, then we, we we talked earlier about the actual blockade and you know why it was implemented. Uh, I'd like to talk about the you know the blockade today, you know especially on how it works to to punish efforts of international solidarity from nations uh, as well as individuals as well. If you're able to give us a rundown of that,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really important to understand how it operates because people don't go to Cuba and they kind of see certain products and they can't really understand if there's this blockade. How can they buy? Uh, certain products on the island I mean it's it's a a blockade that's enforced by a a whole network of fines and threats Um, and it's quite arbitrary it's not uh, you know some companies you know particularly if they're exposed to the United States economy uh, will take it incredibly seriously often you'll get companies that are involved in mergers or buyouts and uh, they'll have accountants and, and people going through their books and they'll kind of look at Cuba and think, oh, we won't bother with that one, that's too dangerous. So it, it's kind of a bit arbitrary, it's a bit kind of sporadic as to where it applies, but it is completely uh, vicious. Under Obama, the Obama administration, remember that was a time when uh, the United States was supposedly having a rapprochement with Cuba, uh, they fined uh, 49 international companies during that period, so the biggest kind of uh, period of, of the blockade is extraterritorial application. Uh, and they they... They uh, fined them over uh, 14 billion billion, 40, uh, no, sorry, $19 billion. It was for over 40 com- companies, but $19 billion worth of fines issued to those companies. And these were companies like, mainly like banks, but also other uh, international corporations. So these were like banks, including British banks, including the Royal Bank of Scotland, which at the time had been nationalised after the financial crash. So it was owned by all of us. Uh, Barclays, Lloyds. All paid over two hundred million pounds each in fines to the US Treasury, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the body that oversees uh, the blockade. Um, so it's it's enforced by serious levels of fines. The biggest fine in history for such a, a thing was issued against um, the French bank BNP Paribas. Um, it was a huge fine. Wait for it. It was. Um, the fine was uh, $7 billion, billion for one bank. And at the time, the president of France, I think it was Hollande, stood up and said, there's no way that our French bank is going to pay this money to the US. No way whatsoever. But they paid it. They paid it anyway. And the reason these companies pay these fines is quite simple. They have to make a choice. They either settle with the United States and carry on trading with the United States, but on a global level, or they trade with Cuba. Cuba is a tiny, tiny economy, and if you either trade with Cuba or you trade with the rest of the world, you don't have any option. And the United States is incredibly vicious in its persecution, the blockade. Um, you know, it affects everybody, even the the people on the Young Trade Unions Brigade. You know, some of them couldn't get insurance, some of them couldn't use their mobile phones uh, because those companies wouldn't work with Cuba. So it is extraterritorial in the fact that it impacts on countries uh, outside the other countries apart from the US. So in Britain, for example, the Cuba Solidarity campaign itself had all its bank accounts closed down by the Co-op Bank. Well, the Co-op is basically a British bank. It was a, you know, it's um, supposedly an ethical bank. They shut all our bank accounts down because of the threats of the extraterritorial application of the US blockade. There's a really... uh, famous case where we campaigned for a young Cuban student in uh, 20, uh, 2017. He, he'd done his degree at a university in London, and the the lecturers there suggested he go on and do a postgraduate degree at the Open University. So he he went to Open University with all his good references and so on, and they turned him down. They turned him down from applying, and he said, well, is it because you know I, I haven't got the money, or is it because I don't have the grades, or is it because of my status or whatever? And they said, no. And after questioning, and we got involved because uh, his previous lecturer realized what was going on. And we were helping him to contact the Open University and draft the letters. After various questions and probing and prodding for an answer, they wrote back that it was because of, because of the extraterritorial application of the US blockade. They were scared of the blockade and the fines. And he was blocked from the Open University. And we launched a huge campaign. Over 200 members of Parliament wrote to the government. All the British trade unions, particularly the teaching and lecturers trade unions, uh, wrote to the government. It was in the press, in the media. Uh, And the Open University were under severe pressure on the issue. We wrote to all other universities and asked them, would you accept Cuban students? And of course, they all said, yes, of course we would. Uh, And it was only the Open University that wouldn't. And once they found out that we were writing to all the other universities, they were getting very angry and got the lawyers out. So it went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And in the end, we got lawyers. We got uh, a lawyer to take a case, and we won. We won the case. We didn't win the case on the blockade. We won it on anti-discrimination grounds, on equal opportunities legislation, because essentially they were banning an entire nation from coming to the open university set up by the then-Labour government in the 60s. And we won the case and won compensation for the student and got him his place for the following year. But it shows you the uh, veracity of the blockade. I mean, I always tell the story of a woman a few few months ago now who... uh, put a small trinket, a bracelet that she'd bought in Cuba, a little made of seashells. Uh, she bought it on a holiday in Cuba. And she put it up on eBay and she was selling it for 99 pence on eBay. And she put it up on, on eBay and within four hours, she had a, a message from eBay asking her to take down her Cuban trafficked goods or they would close down her eBay account. And so... The word Cuba on the internet just sparks all sorts of nonsense. You immediately get uh, warning messages from all sorts of people. You you really cannot do anything uh, when you use the word Cuba. We ourselves, you know, during COVID, we were sending, uh, trying to pay for medical aid for Cuba. The Cubans were finding the suppliers who would sell them the much-needed medical supplies, and they would send us the invoice. And we were paying the invoices. Um, And we we managed to send over some incredible stuff, life-saving Uh, medical supplies and, and raw materials for vaccine production and so on. But to be honest, I spent two, two and a half years. It felt like I was some sort of money laundering criminal or drug dealing criminal trying to sort of get this money, not to Cuba. This is money from an account in London, often to a company in France or a bank in Spain or even a bank in the UK. And just moving money from one account to another with the word Cuba associated with it at one end or the other, was virtually impossible. And we had to use all sorts of methods to try and move that money. I won't go into too much detail for obvious reasons. But, you know, what were we doing? We were trying to send humanitarian aid to a country that needed it in a a world health crisis, in a pandemic. Yet we were treated like criminals uh, for doing so. And that is what the blockade does. And it's why uh, companies and individuals won't trade with Cuba, and even if they want to, they can't. You know, and we're a British organisation; with members of parliament in it. <laughs> uh, if you're a business, a company, let alone a Cuban company, trying to do trade, and you can't do anything with money in this dollar economy, uh, dollar-dominated economy, or in national transactions that are carried out in the dollar, it is virtually impossible for you to trade and do work in Cuba. So it's an incredibly uh, potent blockade. Uh, It's enforced with a complete rigour to a level of ridiculousness when people can't go online and buy Cuban honey or Cuban coffee or whatever it might be. It's a a really pernicious uh, uh, blockade that affects countries and individuals um, around the world. And it's not something that we can take lightly or, or should take lightly and in fact it's it's a it's it's an insult to to you and me and the people of Britain and and England and Scotland sorry because it's affected our sovereignty you know if if Italy came along said right well sorry you you lot you can't trade with France anymore we wouldn't take it lightly you know if if uh, the Germans came along said oh by the way you know we don't want you to trade with Spain anymore you know you're not going to take it but that's what's going on Another country is telling all of us who we can and we can't trade with. Uh, Britain has no sanctions with Cuba. Britain has full diplomatic trading relations with Cuba. There is no obstacle to Britain's going to Cuba, trading with Cuba, going backwards and forwards. The only obstacle is a third country, a bully, a bullying country, the United States of America, that is telling you, me and the rest of us here who we can and we can't be friends with, who, who we can and we can't trade with. It's an outrage and it should be stopped. And that's the extraterritorial application of the blockade. And uh, the British government uh, first voted against the blockade in 1996 after the extraterritorial uh, decision was taken, after the Helms-Burton legislation, and has voted against the blockade every year since. At the last United Nations vote, 184 countries voted against the blockade. And only two countries voted for it, the United States itself, and, of course, its partner in Crime Israel, uh, who voted for it. A couple of countries abstained, Brazil at the time, because there was Bolsonaro there and, and Ukraine. We know why. But the situation is that the world has spoken against the blockade, and the United States ignores the will of the world. They are the outsider. They are the isolated party in this. Um Unfortunately, we have a system of international uh, law that is subject to the veto of countries like the United States, so nothing happens about it. But uh, the blockade is illegal under UN law. You know, it's been voted on 30 times and uh, by the vast majority of the world, you might as well say. Uh, The United States ignore the will of the world. They ignore people like you and me and the British people, and they bully people around the world in Cuba, but in every other country also to carry out their uh their blockade their unjust blockade of uh, the cuban people so the blockade today is still that is the number one uh problem uh for cuba but it's also a problem for us and we do everything we can and we must do everything we can to raise it here in britain with uh the british parliaments the, the, the national parliaments around the uk and scotland and wales and anywhere we can so that uh we can show that there is a different way of doing business, and that we're not subject to another country's laws uh, and regulations, which are so clearly uh, wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely spot on, Comrade. Uh, that's a fantastic analysis in terms of you know how the the blockade uh, works. I remember looking back at COP twenty six. I had the pleasure of welcoming the the human delegation for that, and you know listening to their their goals and their, their life plan. As they call it For their environmental task And uh, learning how difficult The blockade makes Trying to save the world For them And them doing their part How frightening it is And yeah Even back here uh, You know Trying to, to, to get aid uh, Across the, the country uh, and to Cuba, you know, I, I think it's great that so many of the, the delegations that go there for May Day uh, bring over, like we've mentioned uh, earlier on the show, even simple stuff like paracetamol, ibuprofen, the, the very basic things that, that go a long way in Cuba uh, and the repercussions, especially those trade unionists in America face on the return back uh, into, the, into America, uh, where they find themselves being held uh, at airports, questioned, interrogated uh, in fear. That they're bringing stuff over from Cuba, <laughs> it's absolutely barbaric. to, to see the get uh, the grab that America has, and its ruthlessness of it. You know, it's it seems that as you've said, you know that it really is enforcing its own will uh, of what it desires to see in Cuba onto the whole world. It aims to turn uh, the many nations that speak out against the blockade and the, the brutal treatment of the Cuban people. Uh, it's America's aim to turn those nations into the the mongrels of their own wishes. Uh and that it's 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 frightening to see, but yet inspiring to see the, the Cuban resolve to this, as we mentioned, obviously in regards to the COVID vaccines development, uh education, the continued work in Cuba's life plan and and so much that's gone on within Cuba against the blockade. You know, it it brings a question why is America continuing this? And we know why that's it's continuing this for for many reasons. Uh, but it, it makes you think that you know, so many good people who, as we've said before, aren't inherently socialists or, or communists or Cuba fanatics, you know, it, it makes them question why is this still going on? And, and you know, the work that you guys are doing the Cuba Solidarity campaign itself you know, is certainly inspiring to, to reach these kind of people as well and getting them to take the initial first steps of providing real solidarity and challenging their own government's complicity. Uh, on the, the the blockade in cuba so moving on to the next part then robert just uh, this will be the last wee question here you know we've talked a lot about the, the international work of, of cuban itself the mayday delegations there what can we do from our own countries to to really aid uh, an impact and you know provide much needed support for the cuban people
1: yeah, I mean, there's loads of things to do. I mean, obviously, the main thing is giving solidarity. And solidarity is, uh, I suppose, you can look at it in two ways. I mean, there's the the actual giving of uh, material aid uh, to the people of Cuba. The solidarity aid is not a charitable thing. It's a solidarity thing. And we've talked about uh, some of the ways people do that when they travel over there. But, you know, CSE runs all sorts of uh, campaigns. We've just uh, completed the Viva Educacion appeal, which raised over £100,000 and has just sent two uh, 40-foot shipping containers uh, full of material aid for schools, uh, footballs, books, uh, there's half a million uh, pens and pencils, there's, I mean, like 200,000 exercise books for kids in schools, uh, loads of dance equipment, sports equipment, um, and so on. There's over 300 computers on there for schools. So that's real uh, material solidarity. But I suppose the biggest thing is the solidarity in terms of political action and political campaigning in this country. We spoke about people trying to break the information, uh, blockade about Cuba, about correct information about Cuba. So raising awareness about the island is, is crucial, but also campaigning in your organisations and particularly in your trade unions and your workplaces for a position of solidarity uh, with Cuba. We have lots of or you know, interchange between Cuban unions and British unions, and that's one of the best ways really for us to reach people in this country Uh, because we still have a trade union movement uh, and we can still access uh, the trade unions through their literature, through their journals, uh, through their meetings, through their democracy, uh, which is a wonderful way of uh, sharing information about Cuba. So I think in terms of really direct things people can do, I mean, obviously it goes without saying, but I will say it, you know, if you're not a member of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, do join, it's 20 quid a year. We publish a magazine, Cuba Sea, four times a year. The network of local group speakers and so on we have an annual general meeting in june which you can attend but it's a wonderful way of of, of supporting cuba if you're unwaged you're a student or a pensioner and so on it's only eight pound a year uh so it's you know it's very well worth doing you get the magazine you get all the information and you're part of the network and you're actually enacting solidarity by doing that so that's the first step i mean the second step is to get your trade unions and your organizations to affiliate to the campaign Uh, because if you're part of a movement you know you can play a part in that movement you learn about solidarity you share with others you, you you take collective action with others as part of a movement uh which uh you know isn't just on the internet as you mentioned yourself you know it is something real um and you know you can speak about it you can talk about it you can take part you can participate in demonstrations in actions uh around the country so i think Joining and affiliating is the most important thing. And then, of course, participating in many of the campaigns that we uh, have or are taking place at any one particular time we have. For example, we bring Cuban speakers over. I mentioned the doctors we've had over in, in a, a couple of weeks' time. We have a Cuban education specialist, a young uh, teacher coming over uh, to, and she'll be speaking in about 11 uh, towns and cities, it's mainly in England, unfortunately, this time, but you know ac- across the country. And you can find out the information about her visit and hear from a real a real Cuban, if you like. Uh, and hear firsthand uh, the information. We have an ongoing campaign against the blockade, which is a, a kind of campaign focusing on the British government. We're about to launch a campaign on the uh, Cuba being on the state sponsor of terrorism list. Um, so there's all sorts of activities and actions. We do a lot of lobbying of members of parliament and uh, parliamentarians across the nations. So Uh, to to try and get them to take a positive position on Cuba and to press the British government uh, and the national governments on Cuba. So there's loads we do do. We obviously uh, work across the trade unions um, at their conferences um, and across those organisations to try and get the maximum number of people involved in solidarity work with Cuba. It's an ongoing task. I mean, we're a small organisation, but we're very enthusiastic and we welcome everyone on board uh, we have, like I say, the network of local groups and pe- the local groups across the country are organising speaking, uh, you know, meetings with speakers or film shows, or they're attending local festivals and demonstrations to share information about Cuba, linking with other campaigns and organisations. So there's, there's a whole myriad of uh, things to be done. Um, and I think for any kind of person who sees himself as progressive or socialist uh, in any way, I think Cuba has to be at the forefront of, of that campaigning. Um, because it is, as you mentioned yourself, um, an opportunity to say whatever or however dire the situation might feel uh, in this country, and you know we're not in a great uh, political moment in time right now. You've got Cuba as an example of, of, of a possibility of a different world, a different way of doing things so that you can visualize and see a real country that puts people first, puts people before profit, and that. A well-worn saying is one that we need to hang on to because that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for a collective society where people share what they have with each other, look after each other, and build a society for all, not for the few. And it's a society that is for everybody, regardless of race or age or gender or anything, you know, where you come from, but particularly of wealth, uh, where everybody is entitled to try and fulfill their maximum potential and unfortunately in our country that is not what happens you know it's based on the fact that if you've got money you have all the opportunities and if you haven't got money you haven't um you know in cuba isn't like that you go to cuba and you go to the ballet school and you see kids from every background every color every variety and you talk to them and they're from all over the island and it's completely free so there is no uh discrimination based on uh color religion creed but particularly on wealth uh, your your wealth uh, everybody has the same opportunity and that's a wonderful thing you know I, it, it's so sad that children particularly in our country are denied the opportunities because of where they're born or the family they come from or the wealth of their family in particular and they therefore don't have the same opportunities as others they don't have the same opportunities to go to the top schools or the best schools they don't have the same health opportunities and they certainly don't have the, the same uh you know opportunities in terms of specialist education and so on and so forth in terms of what jobs they might end up uh, at the end you know yeah, as they go through life and that's unfair it's unfair from every possible point um and i think cuba shows that a different way of doing things is possible there's a long way to go cuba's got a lot lot to uh, achieve and i hope that with the solidarity of people around the country and people involved in solidarity here uh, we can make sure that Cuba keeps building its society and keeps developing despite the difficulties they face uh, until a time when Cuba can flourish which I'm certain that it will do uh, over the coming years.
0: Absolutely spot on Comrade I don't even think that requires me to give a little add-on at the end you've summed it up perfectly there. So just to uh, wrap us up just looking to see if you've got any final talking points uh, as well as whereabouts we can find uh, yourself uh, and the Cuba Solidarity campaign on social media and that. Yeah yeah
1: well I mean we're, we're all over social media. But you can get hold of Cube Solidarity at our website, obviously www.cuba-solidarity.org.uk. But we're on Facebook and Twitter and uh, all the other channels as well. So, yeah, just go look for Cuba Solidarity. You'll find us. As soon as you put Cuba Solidarity in, you'll find us everywhere. But, uh, you know, if you've got any questions, get in touch anytime, um You know, send us messages on, on all the platforms. And we'll always get back to everybody. And if you want speakers in your workplaces, in your groups, online or in person, we'll do everything we can. And yeah, we never turn down an opportunity to talk about Cuba. We we love talking about Cuba. That's what we're here for. So, uh, you know, anyone who wants uh, somebody to speak about Cuba, do get in touch. But it'd uh, be great to hear from people at any time. But thank you uh, for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, thanks again, Robert, for your time. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about Cuba. I think it's something that definitely needs discussed, uh, especially in regards to how the blockade works and why it's implemented, you know, combating uh, historical revisionism that's been sent out uh, by the US on the reason why Cuba's been blockaded and uh, the lies that say that, you know, it doesn't really affect them anyway uh, in an attempt to smear the development of the island. So, again, I thank you for your time uh, and I wish you and the rest of the comrades involved with the Cuba Solidarity Campaign the uh, much-needed success uh, and development, as I'm sure you'll achieve.
1: Oh, well, cheers, Nathan. It's been great. It's lovely to talk about Cuba. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll do something else in the future. But, yeah, if anyone's listening, I hope it'll be listening. Anyone who is listening, uh, you know, do get in touch, do get involved. And, uh, you know, it's a great cause, uh, Solidarity Cuba. They're a, a wonderful island, a wonderful people. Um, and they've given so much to the world, to others. It's uh, it's really up to all of us to, to do anything we can at any level to uh, help them in solidarity, uh, in friendship. Uh, so that we can see an end to this blockade and an opportunity for the Cuban people uh, to flourish. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: Thanks again, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. In the description, I'll leave the links for the Cuba Solidarity campaign, their social media channels, and how you can get involved in their work. Be sure to leave us a rating on Spotify or on any other listening platform you're tuning in on. Be sure to share Spectre across social media to your friends, colleagues and comrades. It's absolutely vital that we continue our much-needed solidarity effort to the Cuban people. America has tried ruthlessly for over 60 years to squash socialism in Cuba. But time and time again, they've failed. We need only look as far as their failed 600 attempts at assassinating Fidel Castro. Castro embodied the spirit of Cuba, the desire to develop without the fear of American imperialism. For every Cuban citizen wears nothing but a moral vest, a vest so strong that the toughest weapons in America's imperialist arsenal cannot penetrate it. If you're involved with a trade union in any capacity, you should be working hard for your trade union to affiliate the Cuba Solidarity campaign. If you're serious about helping Cuba, Materially and seeing firsthand the way of the Cuban people and their development under the blockade, then you should definitely take the words of Robert and see about being part of the delegations either in May Day or throughout the year. America and the rest of its imperialist mongrels continue to smear Cuba and its people. They continue to fight to see Cuba turned into the playground of the bourgeoisie that it once was. They continue to fight for a return to exploitation and slavery on the island. But the Cuban people fight strong against this. And so do people on the international scale, challenging the US's power. The US and its mongrels will work tirelessly to condemn the Cuban people. But it does not matter. History will absolve them.
1: Levanten tus manos la bandera de la revolución, América Latina obrera y grite con fuerza, Yenky Goho, Yenky Goho.
0: Gringo, go home.
1: Los obreros de América Latina te dicen: gringo, go home. Yankee, go home.